I went hiking this weekend. Really, really, it was, a, it was, a, it was an achievement. It was, we, we hiked Mount Defiance. And I don't know if you know about hiking in the Northwest, but they say that Mount Defiance is the premier hike in all of Oregon. There is nothing tougher unless you're going to climb Mount Hood itself, which is a mountain climb rather than a, a hike, a trail. So this was it. This was the monster. This was, this was 4,900 feet in about six miles, actually five miles of ascent. So that's, we, were, we were easily doing uh, 1,000 or more feet a mile. It was just up, and then it was up, and then it was up, up, up. And it, uh, it, 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 it takes everything out of you. But we're just getting up there. But the view, oh, the view is beautiful once you get up there. You know, you, but, but we get up to the top, and what do I find? We're almost at the very summit, and the hiking trail crosses a road. <laughs> really? This is at about the 4,700-foot level or so, and there's a dirt road. We get up to the top, and there's towers. There's, you could drive all the way up to the top of Mount Defiance, and we just spent the last four and a half hours climbing it. It's kind of like you get up to, you're on an expedition, you're climbing Mount Everest, and you get to the top. Oh, you're breathing a lot harder than that, I'm sure. And there's a chairlift. <laughs> there's an espresso stand. They're, they're having a little trouble foaming the milk because of the altitude, but there it is, and there's all the tourists and the cameras around, the whole deal. And you're thinking, why did I have it so hard? Why was I given this hard trail to climb when others have such an easy path to the, to the summit? You can say, well, it was good for me along the way. Think of the shape that I've gotten my legs into. I don't know. Mine are still hurting. Think of the perspective that you got along the way and how you could see things differently because of that trouble that you went through. But have you wondered in, in, in life... The troubles that you have compared to other people. Some people seem to, seem to have it easier. They seem to have that road to the top where you've got the hard climb. Don't you sometimes wish that you had kind of a Midas touch of life? That things just came easier? That God's blessing was, was just there for you? Why these troubles? We want answers, don't we? We want to know, well, what, what is this trouble for? What is it about? Why has it come? What could I do to make it go away? When troubles come, and they will, when the locusts come, and seems like they will, when troubles come, what do we do with that? What's it for? Well, we want answers, but really it's more important to focus on response. What will I do when trouble comes? When the, tr when, when the trail keeps going up, will I keep going? Or will I give up? Will I bail out? We've been carrying on a, 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 a study through what I've called Route 66. It's a study through the Bible, panorama. We want the big picture view, book by book, going through God's Word. We, the last couple of books that we've been into, we were, we were in the book of 2 Kings. 
the book of Second Kings, we saw the, um, that this, there, was a, a, there was a nation adrift, a nation adrift headed for collision. They had departed from God, they were going the wrong way, and they were headed for disaster. The nation was drifting into decline. In the midst of that, we, we paused from the, his, the history that we've, we've been looking at from Genesis forward. We get to Second Kings, we're going to take a, a pause in the history because God didn't just leave the people there to drift on their own. He sent prophets. And we have the writings of many of those prophets. We have the message that God was speaking to a nation adrift. One of those that we listened to last week was the prophet Obadiah. Very short book, one chapter, shortest book in the Bible. The book of Obadiah talks about coming down from high places. And it's unique. It was spoken to the nation of Edom, but Israel was supposed to learn something from this. Even as God had dealt with Edom for how Edom treated them, God would deal with them as how they were treating others. It, it, it spoke about a, a, in the midst of life and other people's troubles, it talked about an attitude of indifference, of aloofness, a stepping back that, well, that doesn't really matter because it's happening to you, not to me. There's an arrogance there. And that arrogance leads to uh, looking for my own advantage in the midst of your trouble rather than helping you. It's kind of like going to the yard sale for the Epps and trying to talk down. Okay, you want, you want $10 for that, for that table? I think, I think I'll give you three. Looking for my advantage in the midst of the trouble rather than how can I help. Because my focus is on me rather than on others. And that actually ends up putting us in and put Edom and Israel in the adversity. They should have been brothers and yet they were opposed to one another. What was true with Edom is easily true of God's people. How do I respond when others are in trouble? That was the book of Obadiah. This week, how do I respond when I'm the one having trouble? That's the book of Joel. The book of Joel as I talked with the kids, the book of Joel is a lot about bugs, okay? There's a lot of bugs in the book of Joel. There's a lot about locusts in the book of Joel. I want to give you a little bit of background. Where does the book of, of Joel come from? What's happening in this book? But there's, there's three chapters, and just to give you an overview of those three chapters before we, we look at that background, the, chapter one deals with locusts that are coming, there is a plague of locusts that is coming upon Judah. That's Joel chapter 1. Describes the locusts, warns about the locusts. The locusts are coming. What do we do? How should we respond? When we know trouble's coming, how do we respond? Then chapter 2, those locusts are described in even greater detail in a way that the locusts that are coming prefigure or they anticipate, they predict a coming army invasion. Actually, I think there's a couple of invasions that are going to be coming, a smaller one and then finally a bigger one, Babylon, that'll take the nation away ultimately several hundred years down the road. So there's a plague of locusts coming, and that plague of locusts described further in Joel 2 is anticipating an even greater future judgment described in Joel 3. That's the book of Job, okay? When is it written? How, does it, how, how, how can I set that up? I would, I would put the date, again, one of the earlier prophets, around about eight, 840 or so. 840 B.C., 830 B.C. This is about 100 years before the prophet Isaiah. Some people would date it later than that, but let me tell you why I think it's here. There was a, this was a time in the nation when there's uh, some unsettledness in the throne. 
uh, there have been some evil kings, and they, they, one of them's died. His son reigns in his place, and he's no better, and uh, he dies within the year. And when he dies, as an act of God's judgment, he dies. And when he dies, his mother, the queen mother, decides, well, this is an opportunity. The, there aren't very many heirs to the throne left, and these are her relatives. This is the royal family. She decides to take out any of the other potential heirs that she can, and she is going to rule and reign herself. Well, one little baby boy, he's about a year old, is rescued. He's the son of the king. He's rescued by his aunt, and she hides him away, and they hide him in the temple for the next, for the, for the next six or seven years. There is no Davidic king on the throne during this time. There is no king in Judah. There always has been up till now, but there's not. The queen mother is on the throne. There are leaders, there are elders of the nation, including some of the high priests. These are the officials and leaders of the people other than the royalty, and they need to do something about it. Joel is written to the elders of Israel. Joel is addressing the elders and the priests, among others. You'll see that over and over again. Because the royal family isn't functioning. There's an illegitimate queen holding the throne, and Joash, when he's seven years old, I think in response to this prophecy, partly, the priest is going to be encouraged to bring Joash out, even though he's only seven years old, bring him out into the temple, and he's going to be coronated as king. The queen mother is going to shout, treason, treason, but they're going to, uh, sh- he's going to be killed, and now Joash is going to reign. And Joash reigns well for several years. He follows the Lord. He does what's right in God's sight, but not with his whole heart. He, he goes through the motions, and he does a lot of good things, but he's doing this at the coaching and the instruction of this priest that has been his mentor and his protector, his guardian, so to speak. And once the priest dies, he no longer has, has a, his voice to listen to, and he hasn't ever learned, apparently, to listen to God's voice himself and to follow God's word completely for himself. He begins to listen to other advice and carries the nation back into Uh, idolatry, the following of idols, specifically pursuing prosperity, success. How can we, and I think, in fact, his response to the locust plague is to say, we need the agricultural idols back back in the game here. We never had locust plagues like this back when we were, when we were worshiping the Baals. And so we need to bring in the worship of those false gods again. That's what some of his advisors told him, and that was the way that he ended up going. So that was his response. How should he have responded to the message of Joel, the warning of God's judgment that would be coming? When troubles come, and maybe we know why, maybe we don't. It's interesting, you think about troubles, and often we want to analyze. We want to analyze why has this come? What have I done? You ever, you ever wonder that way? What have I done that God is doing this? But maybe that's not the point. You can think it through and try to come up with an answer. You read the book of Job. That's what his friends did. They had all kinds of answers. Job wondered about the answer, but what was most important about the book of Job is Job's response. He said, though God slay me, yet will I trust him. His confident response in God, even when he did not understand what God was doing, he still set himself before the Lord. He still cried out to the Lord. That's the lesson out of the book of Job. 
And there's a lesson for that in how we respond to trouble. But let me get into the book then. Job's warning addressed to the leaders, those elders, and the people is that God will strip the prosperity away just as the book of the law had described. See, Joash, when he's brought out of that temple, he's given a copy of God's law. He's told all the things the people should do. He's told what will happen if they don't. Locusts are really key three times in the scriptures. They are one of the plagues. In fact, the third plague from the end that brings Egypt to its knees. And they let God's people go. And then you have the locusts mentioned here in the book of Joel, especially. And then you have locusts finally mentioned as one of those judgments, horrible demonic locusts in the book of Revelation. Three times locusts are mentioned against Egypt, against the nations in God's cataclysmic final judgment. And here, locusts come in a swarm and are a judgment from God against his own people. And that was mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. 28, 32 was mentioned that, that if you don't follow me, if you don't walk in my ways, one of the things that God would do They would flee before their enemies. There would be drought and famine in this land of promise. And there would also be locusts that God would send to steal away, to eat away all of their prosperity. All of the promise that they should have enjoyed in the land of God's blessing. Okay, a plague of locusts is coming upon God's people. In Joel chapter 1 and beginning at, well, at verse 1. And and if you're using the Pew Bible, I'm in page 644. Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And there's no mention of a king here. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who lived in the land. Has anything like this ever happened before your days? In the days of your forefathers, tell it to your children. Tell the children and tell it to their children. Pass this story along. Why? What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. And what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. The vineyards have been ruined by the locust. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It laid waste my vines, ruined my fig trees, stripped off the bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. The idea here is a maiden who was engaged and before, her, before the wedding day could come, her, her, her betrothed, her, her husband-to-be is killed in battle or some other means and, and, and uh, she is left grieving for the husband that had been promised to her but she would never have. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. Why? Because there's no sacrifices. All of the the prosperity that was also brought into the temple for the worship of God, all of it's stripped away, all of it's taken away. The vine is dried up, the fig tree is withered in verse 12. The pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree, all the trees of the field, they're dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. How to respond? What should I do when I'm missing God's blessing? You see, this is the key. God's blessing has been withheld. 
God's blessing has not simply be withheld like the rains are withheld. God has sent in locusts to strip it away. Circumstances have come, and you perhaps have experienced some of that. Circumstances have come in life, and you say, it shouldn't be like this. Why has this happened? Why, is, why are events and situations against me? The economy is against me. Just the... the, the um, Things that are going on in society have turned out for my worst. Things are out or out of my control are not only preventing me from getting ahead, but I'm sinking. I'm getting further and further behind. Maybe I lost my job. Maybe, I lost, maybe we lost our home. We don't know how we're going to make it. How do I respond when I'm missing God's blessing? Because our expectation is, well, it shouldn't be like this, should it? It shouldn't be like this. How do I respond? What do I do? Verse 14, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. What he does not say is get a can of doom. The locusts are not the issue. The circumstance itself is not the issue. The squeeze and the press of the circumstance is to do one thing and that's to direct our attention back to God. Those circumstances that happen in the midst of life, as short and as brief as it is, I know sometimes life, it seems like life is a long time. When you're, when, you're, when, you're, when you're young, it seems like life will stretch forever before you. We had a, a laugh last night. Uh, we were talking about somebody trying to, I forget who it was, but trying to identify somebody. And so I asked Julie if, if, if the person was, was old. And that just caused giggles at the table because among some of the younger people at our table because who am I to be asking if somebody's old in their view? You know, it, it catches up with you pretty quick. But, but, but life, even long in years, is brief. And the circumstances, as pressed as they are now, they are short in view of eternity. And the things that happen to us here, the things that happen to us here, and, and we can't really imagine in our experience something like a lo locust fl plague where all the prosperity, every source of not only income, but sustenance. What are we going to feed our children, not only tomorrow, but today after, they, after this plague has come through? Can't even eat the bugs. When they swarm, they're poisonous. What do we do? I can't fix this. Don't we want to fix things? Don't we want to respond? Don't we want to organize and, and create an agenda and, and, and pursue and, 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 and carry out a strategy? And if we do these things, things will then be different. And the answer here is simply this. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Some of the elders and those who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. That's what Solomon told him to do. Solomon, in his prayer, when the, temple was when the temple was dedicated, he said, and when your people depart from your ways, God, and when you have sent famine, and when you have sent drought, and when they've been harassed by armies, and when you have sent locusts, and they turn and pray to you, hear their prayer. In the midst of trouble, the one, our response is the key, it doesn't matter so much, well, why has this happened? What exactly have we done? The thing to do is to call out to the Lord. God, you are the sovereign. You are in charge. 
One thing that we do, we must do, that we do not do nearly enough is simply to pray, to simply to ask God. We are in a place where we would like to see revival. We would like to see more of God's blessing. We would like to see that thing called revival where the normal means by which God works through his prayer, or or, or rather through prayer and answering prayer, through the use of his word, people hearing his word and believing it, and lives being transformed by that word, and the spirit working and nudging and, and convicting people, encouraging us in the midst of, we would like to see the table tilted so that those normal ways that God works are just accelerated. And, and he's working in greater power and effect than we'd ever seen before. We would like to see that. But the Spirit moves where it will. Man doesn't know where it comes from or where it goes. That's what Jesus said in John 3. You pray, all we can do for our neighbor, we can share with our neighbor, we can share with that person we love, but unless the Spirit comes and opens their eyes so that they can hear, nothing will happen. When we sense the lack or the need of God's blessing, the one thing we must do is call out to the Lord. And I would say this morning, I'm a, I'm a person of action. I, 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 I believe in doing things. I believe in forming a plan. We carry out. There must be something we can do. But it's a matter of, God, would you do? God, would you act God, would you meet our need by your mercy? That's the mention. That's the action. Look also in verse 19 of chapter 1. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and the flames have burned all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up. The fire has devoured the open pastures. Could it be that we at times, could it be that we at times allow the incidental to replace the ultimate or the essential. We allow the incidental to replace the essential. We allow the the incidental, which is God's blessing, to, to take the place of that which is essential, which is God's presence, God's person. Who knows, perhaps God would hear if you turn over in chapter 2, um, get, 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 to get a little more of this response, you turn over in chapter 2, and you see that actually I have on the slide verse, verse uh, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, and actually that I meant chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Let's start at verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Do you remember when I said how Joash that young king, how he followed the Lord. He didn't, he didn't follow the ways of his father, the evil ways of idolatry at first. He followed the Lord, but not really with his whole heart. He followed the lead of others and went through the motions, easy to do. But when his mentor was gone, when the one who discipled him was no longer there, what would he do? Who would he listen to now? And he listened to others instead of listening to God. He says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with your whole heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding, and he relents from sending calamity. So who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings, drink offerings, 
for the Lord your God. Out of God's blessing, he would leave something that you can then use to worship him. Those locusts of Joel chapter 1, they're a picture of greater trouble coming. They're a picture of greater judgment coming. As you read through Joel chapter 2, I'm not going to go through the descriptions, but, but as you read there, you don't know sometimes, is he talking about an army? Is he talking about bugs? Is he talking about bugs? Is he talking about a battalion? You don't know sometimes. It could be either. And commentaries go all over the place with this. And there was a time when I was all jacked up about the end times prophecy of Joel and what's going to happen and how's this going to play out and which army is this. And there's enough obscurity there that suggests to me that that is not the point. The point is the response. What will God's people do when we are missing God's blessing, we will call out to the Lord. How do I live in a time when I sense God's looming judgment? We talked about a nation adrift, and when a nation is adrift, there will be judgment coming. We know that upon this whole world, there will be judgment coming. We argue about, well, how soon is it? How near are we? What are the circumstances around us today? In our own society or on the world stage, what do those circumstances suggest about the future? And we could debate and have fun with that all day long. But what should I do? How should I respond when I sense God's looming judgment? And, there, and, and there's the answer in those verses that I just read. First of all, verse 12 again of chapter 2. Even now, declares the Lord, he speaks the word individually, return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. Don't go through the motions, but it's an issue of sincerity. It's a measure of depth. That's the difference. The difference is depth here, not the motions. Rend your heart and not your garments. There's an individual turning back and casting oneself upon the Lord with all of our heart. But then there's also, there's a looking to the Lord together. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a, a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, even the nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room, the bride her chamber. Let the priest who minister before the Lord weep, to, weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn. A byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? There is that calling together corporately as well. There's something about a people together calling on God. It's an individual thing. It's also a together thing. There's something when a church together says, not only do I need God's blessing, not only do I need the power and presence of God in my own life, not only do I need to pursue my own devotion to the Lord, but we need to experience God's presence. We together need to experience God's power. We need to see God working in this community, not from me, not from you, but from us as well. And there's something different about that. There's something wonderful about that. When, when as it says in 1 Corinthians, when visitors would come in among you and say, God is in this place. God himself is in your midst. Because he sees it not merely in an individual, but he sees it together. And he sees it in the interaction together. And he sees it in the mutual sacrifice and the shared serving together. 
that takes that inherent human selfishness and somehow subdues it and pushes it aside by the moving of the Spirit in such a way that the body of Christ shows Christ. There's no answer for that. We need that. And where that comes from is when we call on the Lord, not only individually, but when we call on the Lord together. At a time when we even ought to expect to experience God's judgment. We look at the, st- at the world around us today, we look at our own society today, and we say, how could God not judge? He's done it before. He's looked at societies acting like ours, and his judgment has come down. Why would he wait? And yet, verse, th- verse 13 says, Return to the Lord your God because he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents concerning from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. He may leave behind some of those incidentals, which are not the point. The point is God's presence. But our, our, our hope, our chance, at more than going through the moments, or or rather more than going through the motions, our chance at seeing God's blessing again at work. And it's often in individual lives that there's an ebb and a flow. There are times when the Spirit seems to just be poured out, and there are times when it seems like the heavens are brass, my prayers don't go anywhere, I feel like God has departed and I'm on my own. Have you felt that individually? There are times when it feels that way in a church. There are times when God's blessing is evident and obvious, and there are times when it's not. As you look back through the 150 years of experience here at Brush Prairie, that has been the case. There have been times of of wonderful increase. There have been times of conflict. There have been times of trouble. There have been times of just hardship within the church and within the community. There were times when the church almost closed its doors. And following that, there were times of great reviving and increase and growth. We could try to analyze it. We could say it's because of this, it's because of that. But one thing we must do, one thing we must do, one thing Joel tells us to do, and that is to call upon the Lord. There will be times, so it seems, in this broken world, in this fallen world, I had an epiphany on the hike. Ah, this is maybe an aside. Maybe I shouldn't say it, but I'll, I'll go ahead. We're walking along, and there, there are these rock fields where it seems like a side of the mountain has just let go, and there's these broken little tile pieces of rock all down the landscape. And I looked at that, and I said, the mountain is broken. Wasn't that profound? Wow! The mountain is broken. And the words just kind of echoed across the broken rocks. This creation that we're living in is broken. Even the, even the highest mountain, the tallest, the, the tallest point in the, glo- in the gorge, this big mass that is almost, it, well, it's difficult to conquer unless you drive up the back way. Even that mountain, as mighty as it is, has been broken and will be moved We are living in a broken, fallen world. There are years that the locusts have eaten. 
in your life, in mine, and in our experience together as a church, what will we do? How can we restore those years that the locusts have eaten? Well, first of all, as you read the book of Joel, you'll find that there's the warning of the coming darkening of the sun and the moon and of a great cataclysmic judgment. There's going to be so many locusts that they're going to blot out the sun. That's pointing to a future time in in, in the book of Revelation where the sun indeed will be darkened. But wait a minute. Didn't that happen already? At Christ's crucifixion, wasn't wasn't the sun darkened? Right in the middle of the afternoon, the hottest part of the day, wasn't the sun darkened? And from there, after the darkening of that sun, wasn't there a cataclysmic judgment where the wrath of God himself fell upon that man on a cross? Where in that darkness it is said, even the Father, God the Father, turned his face away and all the wrath for all of our guilt and sin fell on his son, Jesus. And he died. And then... He was restored. That's what, that's what Joel's talking about. There is going to be this darkness, there's going to be this judgment, but there will also be restoration. That has also, also happened for us in Christ. There was darkness, there was judgment, there is restoration. The sun is raised up, he ascends, he sits down at the Father's right hand where he has gone to prepare a place for you. And on that basis, on that basis, you and I, can call out to a loving and merciful God. We need to, but we can. In the midst of a time of looming judgment, in the midst of a time where we need God's blessing, we can call out to the Lord. We can pursue His presence, you and I ourselves, individually, and we must. You can't just ride along with others King Joash did that. He rode along for years with this priest who mentored him. When it was left to him, he didn't have his own spiritual life to continue. You must pursue the Lord on your own. You and him, his spirit drawing you. But we must also pursue the Lord together as a church, even this morning. Pursue his presence yourself and with others. As we continue in worship now, I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you. There's something funny. I mean, we don't have a, a special altar here that when you come here and offer sacrifices or, or, or do some other act that that merits some special blessing. But sometimes it's a matter of moving, of getting up and going to someone or getting up and coming forward just to make a move with your body that manifests a move in your heart. Sometimes it's a matter of gathering together with some other that you want to pray with. You see somebody else and you want to pray with them. Somebody else needs someone to pray with. I want to encourage us as we continue now in a time of worship, there are several more songs that Josh and the team are going to come and lead us in. But as we do that, I want to encourage you. If instead of singing, if you need to pray, if instead of singing, you simply need to say, God, would you pour out your blessing upon me? God, would you draw me nearer to you? I want to invite you to do that. Take the time to do that. If you, if you see somebody else and you want to join them and pray, in, in these next few songs, go ahead. Remove the inhibitions. Go ahead. Come forward and do that. This is a time when, when as ourselves individually, 
But as a church together, we need to do simply what one of the few imperatives or instructions or commands, things we're told to do out of this prophet Joel, is to call on the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, as we continue in worship, Lord, set our eyes to you. Lord, we don't want to do this merely in form. We do not want to fill out the agenda, carry out the plan of this morning. Father, we want to call upon you. We want to rend our hearts and not merely the outer display of tearing our garments. Lord, we want to lay ourselves open before you. We want to simply come and say, God, we need your blessing. We are not clever enough. We are not strong enough. We sense in the midst of this life a hunger that there's something more. The, the, the promises around us, Lord, they don't satisfy. We need you. Father, would you pour out your spirit on this church? Would you renew a blessing here that causes there to be even greater things done? To see your, your might, your power at work, but especially, Lord, for, for those of us who, who, who know you and love you, Lord, that we might see your face and know your presence. This we ask in Jesus' name. And all who agree said,